This is not, strictly speaking, an episode of Going Fishing. There is no interviewee. This is a reading of Australia's Uranium Opportunities, the memoir of the late Keith Alder, who we will get to know in due course. I originally found this book in the UNSW Library in 2016. It felt like I'd found a lost piece of Australian history, and in a way, I have. It was privately published by Keith's wife, Pauline. I don't know how many were printed, but it is a difficult book to source. It tells the story of the Australian Atomic Energy Commission and its contribution to Australia's history in nuclear science, through the experience of the author. It is not a story that culminates in a great victory, and many listeners will likely recognise much of the resistance that still exists today. I must offer thanks to several people for their assistance in getting me to this point. John Harries was my first point of contact and was able to put me in touch with Brian Hickman both of whom knew Keith. Brian was able to get me in touch with the Alder family and has loaned me his personal copy of the book for this project. Thank you. Thanks must also be extended to Andrew, Robert and Graham, Keith and Pauline's sons. It is by their enthusiastic permission that this project can be undertaken. Thank you. I hope this endeavour finds your father's work a new audience. A final thank you must be extended to Mara Family Funerals and those of you on the Twitter sphere who also assisted in the search. My plan at this point is to release chapters of this audiobook on weeks alternating between regular going fishing interviews. Upon completion, I plan on making the whole recording available online, free of charge. I hope you enjoy. Australia's Uranium Opportunities People Policies, Politics and Technology. This following passage is the blurb of the book. There are some parts that are damaged and illegible. I'll identify where these are. This book is very much a personal account by one who is deeply involved in the rise and fall of the Australian Atomic Energy Commission, the AAEC, and in particular in what it did to try and bring Australia into the nuclear age. It is not a full history of the AAEC. There were many activities and events which are not covered, but it reveals the thinking behind the Commission's research programs and its major projects, particularly in its work on uranium as a fuel and in its efforts to bring uranium processing industries to Australia. Text damage. Author takes issue with the oft-quoted opinion that the Commission has lost its text damage, originated largely from media coverage of its changing research, text damaged, the ill-fated Jarvis Bay nuclear power station of 1969 to 1970, his, text damaged, what has been written about the AAEC is wrong and has, text damaged, journalism influenced by vociferous anti-nuclear, text damaged. Politics and politicians had disastrous effects on the AAEC, its programs and its aspirations. This is an eyewitness account of what happened, and why, by one who, as he says, was there, and for much of the time, running the show. There are no lists or references, for nowhere has there been any publication before of the inside story. This is not a happy story. The upshot has been a waste of repeated opportunities for the development of major industries based on our uranium resources, and along the way, waste of research resources and results all caused by the shifting sands of government policies. 
As the author points out at the end, the causes of these problems are still here in Australia, in public and political attitudes. It will be interesting in future decades to see whether Australia will finally take advantage of her uranium opportunities, or remain out of step with the rest of the world, particularly with our Asian neighbours. Author's Comment while this book was in the final stages of preparation, my former colleague, Dr. Clarence Hardy, published his Enriching Experiences, a book which covers some of the matters described herein. I had the privilege of reading it in draft and made some suggestions which Clarence assured me were helpful. We discussed collaboration, but our approaches and styles differed greatly, and I believe that the two separate versions of some of the events complement one another without conflict. My narrative starts at a much earlier date than his. I hope it will provide a better understanding of the background to Australia's atomic misadventures, and in particular, the reasons for many of the decisions made by the Australian Atomic Energy Commission, which have so often been misunderstood or misrepresented. Dedication. To the staff of the Disbanded Centrifuge Enrichment and Project Division, CEPD, the boys in Building 64, my friends and former colleagues, thanks for trying. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop to build them up with worn-out tools. Rudyard Kipling. If. Acknowledgements. This would not have been published but for the encouragement, and indeed the urging, of those whom I gave a draft for comment. Originally, it was just a set of notes for a talk I gave to the Australian Nuclear Association in December 1995. In particular, my thanks to Mr D. R. Doug Ebeling and to his wife Helen, to Mr J. C. John Grover, Sir John Proud, Sir Rutherford Robertson, and to Professor R. W. Holm. History and Philosophy of Science, University of Melbourne. A final word of thanks to my nephew, Michael J. Claringbold, himself a published aviation author. Forward by Sir John Proud, Knight Bachelor. The author, a distinguished metallurgical engineer, was involved nationally and internationally in every aspect of Australia's adventure into nuclear power from uranium. Then Chief Executive of Australia's Atomic Energy Commission, now in his retirement, he is the one person able to tell the whole story, a part of our history withheld from the Australian people. Keith Alder has kindly invited me to comment in the light of my own experiences with an operating mining group during the promising years of uranium activities, which stopped dead just when Australia was ready to go prosperous. McMahon, Whitlam, Fraser, Hawke and Keating administrations prevented Australia with 30% of the world's uncommitted uranium resources from mining and selling more than 10% of the world's needs. Thus Canada, with only 10% of the world uranium, cornered Australia's share, ending up with 30% of the market. A Canadian comment was, We don't know what the hell you're doing in Oz, but for God's sake keep on doing it. For decades, Australians gained experience working on the nuclear technology of the 20th century here and in other countries. When their Australian research demonstrated the capability to successfully and efficiently enrich uranium, using our own design of centrifuges, 
Australia had the world at its feet. We had the resources and the superior know-how. Jobs would be created, along with an addition to Australia's national wealth of millions of dollars per year. The scientists and engineers were cockahoo. It was then that government insanity ordered them to stop and disband. Australians had lost that income, and the potential for many jobs. Decisions based on untruths such as this book records divide and impoverish our nation. Such political persistence leads to culpable incompetence and financial disaster in the end. Truth is not a luxury. We need it to survive as a free nation in a tough world. This story and others like it could bring a touch of sanity to future decision making. For this, distinguished by his technical ability, mankind needs wisdom. The continued domination by a consensus of monumental ignorance must not be allowed to blight Australia's intelligent expectation for the future. Keith Alders' modest book might help us restore our lost perspective. John S. Proud, B.E., Minerals and Metallurgy, Sydney. D.Eng. Honours, LLD. Honours, F.I.M.M., F.O.S.I.M.M., F.I.E. Sydney. November 1996. About the author. Keith F. Alder, AM, MSC, FTSE, FIREE, MAIMM. Keith Alder joined the newly formed Australian Atomic Energy Commission in 1954, ten years after graduation as a Master of Science in Metallurgy from the University of Melbourne. He already had a background in nuclear materials, gained in England working with the UK Ministry of Supply. He was an early member of the team sent by the AAEC to Harwell in England for on-the-job training in peaceful uses of atomic energy. This team formed the nucleus of the staff of Australia's Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Lucas Heights near Sydney, where research began in 1957. From leader of the metallurgy section, he became deputy director of the establishment in 1960 and director in 1962. He was appointed a member of the commission in 1968 and from 1975 till retirement in 1982 was its general manager. During the 20 years from 1962 to 82, he was in overall charge of the commission's research activities and also other major technical matters including the Jarvis Bay Nuclear Power Station project and Australia's various cooperative studies with overseas authorities on the prospects for establishing uranium processing industries here. Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 1 Introduction Why is this book necessary? Because the element uranium should be the base on which Australia builds a large, safe and profitable export industry. We have the resources, more than any other country on earth. We have the customers, particularly our neighbours in Asia who are already adopting nuclear power. Atomic energy, as their preferred energy source for the mighty developments in industry and standard of living, into the next millennium. There have been strong attempts already to start this industry all frustrated by political ideology. This story should be told. It is part of the history of the Australian Atomic Energy Commission, AAEC, which was abolished by Parliament in 1987. 
and most criticisms of the AAEC and its programs relate to its work on uranium. Since the AAEC was replaced by the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO, media comments that the Commission lost its way have prevailed ad nauseum. Wrong indeed, but politically correct. In the light of anti-nuclear ignorance, the comment comes from people with no knowledge of what went on inside the AAEC, from experts who don't know the story but believe they do, including many who were not even born in the formative years of the Commission. In hindsight, the events of the 1950s, 60s and 70s, in today's perspective, can and do provide headlines and eye-catching chapter headings, but it also leads to the rewriting of history. The views of this author are those of the insider most concerned with the events described. He was there, and for most of the action described here, running the show. It is said that the only people who do not want history to change are those who have not yet written their memoirs. Well, I do want to change it. Back to what really happened, not the popular and false versions that appear almost wherever there is anything published concerning the AAEC. The Commission has always had its critics, but the more recent ones appear to echo newspaper articles of past decades, which are only half-truths or untruths. The Atom has always been a prolific source of sensational and inaccurate journalism, perhaps more so than any other field of science and technology. To assume that old journalistic opinions and stories about the AAEC are historically correct is highly misleading. They reflect people's views on what they thought should happen, and this includes also archival material such as politicians' correspondence and cabinet papers. In many instances, what actually happened is quite different, a difficult matter for historians. This applies particularly to allegations about nuclear weapons, which have coloured the history of, for example, the Jarvis Bay Nuclear Power Project, the leadership of the AAEC under Sir Philip Baxter, and the Commission's work on uranium processing at its Lucas Heights research establishment. It must be said at the outset that there was never any planning or work done by the AAEC towards the development of nuclear weapons in Australia. Journalists seeking headlines developed the theory that Baxter wanted Australia to develop nuclear weapons. In Alice Court's book, Atomic Australia, is a chapter, Baxter, Beryllium and the Bomb, most of her sources being newspapers. I worked for and with Baxter for 30 years, and never once did I hear him propose work in Australia directed towards bombs. If he had, I believe I would have been the first to know. For where else but Lucas Heights could such work have been done? Yet the rumour was so strong that I can recall hearing a bus driver taking a tour around the site telling his passengers as they passed the physics division, that's where the bombs are made. On several occasions, several of us, with the knowledge of nuclear explosive technology acquired elsewhere, before the AAEC existed, were asked by other agencies of government for advice to assist in intelligence matters. This we gave on request, but all, repeat all, of the Commission's own work was directed at all times to the peaceful uses of atomic energy. And those who say otherwise are remoulding history to suit their own false views and political purposes. The criticisms of the AAEC almost all apply to work it did on the topics of nuclear power, uranium and the nuclear fuel cycle. 
At the beginning of the research establishment at Lucas Heights in the late 1950s, practically all of the Commission's work was on these topics. Over the next two decades, the spectrum of activities expanded to include other topics of importance to the government and people of Australia. Most of these activities are now continuing to have expanded under ANSTO. For example, the production and uses of radioisotopes, particularly for radiopharmaceuticals, the application of radiation and nuclear techniques in science and industry, environmental science, and the fixation of high-activity nuclear wastes. The Commission also played major roles in international affairs relating to atomic energy, both directly and in giving expert advice to governments. The International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, was set up with headquarters in Vienna early in the Commission's history, and Australia had a permanent seat on the Board of Governors from the beginning. Sir Philip Baxter was Australia's Governor for years, and served a term as Chairman of the Board. A principal activity of the agency is international safeguards to prevent diversion of nuclear material to military use. Australia, through its Atomic Energy Commission, played a leading role in setting them up in the first place. The first Director General of Safeguards was an Australian, Alan McKnight, formerly Executive Member of the Australian Atomic Energy Commission. Through its history, the Commission provided highly qualified staff on secondment to the IAEA for two to four year assignments and also members of the chairman and many policy-making committees. For example, on health and safety standards, reactor safety, environmental controls, and nuclear data compilation. The Commission also took leading roles in the International Fuel Cycle Evaluation, INFCE, and set up the instigation of the US government in the late 1970s, and in the European Nuclear Energy Agency, which became the NEA, when Japan joined. These facts do not fit a commission promoting the manufacture of bombs. While there was, and still is, major criticism of the AAEC and its uranium and nuclear power activities, I do not recall much in the way of praise for all the other things it did. Those who were not there in the early days of the atom in Australia simply do not know that almost the whole of the science and engineering field called atomic energy in the early 1950s when the Atomic Energy Act was passed in Australia, 1953, was devoted to research and development directed towards harnessing nuclear fission for peaceful purposes. In other words, developing nuclear power reactors. Almost all of what ANSTO does today did not exist in 1953. Radioisotope work was in its infancy, and in fact was regarded as simply a byproduct of the main activities related to nuclear reactors. Thus, for example, the early move by the AAEC into the manufacture of high-specific activity cobalt-60 occurred because we had surplus neutrons in the reactor until the irradiation rigs for the reactor research program were ready, and all isotope and radiation research was grouped under support and associated research. The subsequent developments within the AAEC and subsequently ANSTO in applications of isotopes, radiation and nuclear physics and technology have been world-class and reflect great credit on those who pursued them. Environmental science, likewise, was in its infancy in the 1950s. The first environmental science unit in Australia, as far as I know, was set up at Lucas Heights in 1956-57 to establish the natural background and to conduct the continuing survey of the surroundings of the research establishment. These activities 
not directly related to nuclear power, have not attracted the criticism and odium heaped upon the early programs of the AAEC, principally by politicians, the media, and numerous anti-nuclear organisations, and I do not intend to discuss them further, but rather to concentrate on the Commission's programs relating to reactors, uranium, and the nuclear fuel cycle. These are the things which have led to the lost-its-way falsehood. What I hope to show is that we did not lose our way at all. What actually happened was that our political masters kept changing the rules, not just once or twice, but over and over again. In retrospect, I believe the AAEC and its staff showed great resilience in the face of constant politically motivated changes, many of which were caused by ignorance-based dogma. For the last 15 years of its existence, a primary goal of the AAEC's main research and development activities was to facilitate setting up uranium-based processing industries in Australia. The largest effort was devoted to the enrichment process to increase the percentage of the fissile uranium isotope U-235 from the level of 0.7% in natural uranium to the range of 2.4% for exporters' nuclear fuel. The AAEC was trying to establish processes at home rather than export as a raw material. But all of these efforts were terminated by political decisions based on anti-nuclear dogma with preference for votes rather than economic and industrial development. As a result, there is now, mid-1996, no work at all in Australia directed towards developing our uranium processing industry. This in a country holding well over 30% of the world's economically recoverable uranium ores. We have thrown away successive opportunities in the past. This is a story to be told here, in the hope that the revelation of our foolishness in the past may assist a little towards the concept of the clever country we aspire to be. There were many reviews of the AEC and its programs during its lifetime, both internal and by external bodies, the latter mostly at government request. The last of these, chaired by Professor R. E. Collins, later the first chairman of the ANSTO board, observed that, a major factor which has resulted in a significant negative impact on the past work of the AAEC has been the imposition on that organisation of major, unplanned, disruptive changes to its programs. While I agree that the major unplanned changes certainly occurred and that they had disruptive influence, I cannot agree that the latest statement of the committee that, as a result of significant changes imposed on the organisation by government, the objectives of the AAEC became less well-defined. The Atomic Energy Act, under which the AAEC operated, defined in some detail the functions and powers of the Commission. But as far as I am aware, the objectives were always very broadly defined and did not change. They were to bring the benefits of atomic energy now nuclear science and technology, to Australia. The strategic plan of ANSTO, published in 1988, outlined how it would optimise the peaceful use of nuclear science for the national benefit. It seemed the broad objectives did not change with the change of organisation. While the broad objectives remained, certainly the means of achieving them changed, sometimes quite dramatically as happened with almost all similar organisations overseas. And I would have to agree that compared with the large output of glossy publications by ANSTO in the few years of its existence, the AAEC produced very few publications detailing its forward planning. 
but I doubt that it was any less effective in terms of its real purpose, despite the politically imposed changes in the details of its programs. The emphasis by the Collins Committee on the need for forward planning by ANSTO and for monitoring performance towards identified goals seems to imply that the AAEC was lax in these matters. Not so. Indeed, the senior staff spent a lot of time on forward planning, in early days for preparations of submission to the Cabinet seeking approval of five-year plans, and later three-year, and there was constant emphasis on monitoring and review of progress towards objectives, and of the aims and objectives themselves. In some ways, it was perhaps too much, because in the 1970s and early 80s, the AAEC became arguably the most reviewed body in Australia's scientific history. Internally, by quarterly reports across its whole spectrum of activities, supplemented by monthly progress meetings chaired by the chairman of the commission, and periodically by major internal reviews, and externally by government-appointed review committees. Probably the most important internal review was that instigated by the then chairman, Mr R. W. Bill Boswell in 1973. It examined the whole program and redefined the roles and tasks for the Commission. Perhaps we erred in not producing a glossy brochure describing it. Some substantial reorganisation resulted, with more emphasis on accountability and on the provision of expert advice to government. Unfortunate, the government of the day, Labour, was already being influenced by anti-nuclear movements and did not seem to want the advice. Also, a race of departmental bureaucrats had arisen which saw such advice as unnecessary because most of them were sure that they knew it all already. There were several high-powered reviews during the last decade of the AAEC's existence. In 1979, a committee of the National Energy Research, Development and Demonstration Council, NERDDC, was set up and reported to the Minister for National Development with a number of wide-ranging conclusions and recommendations for the future of the Commission. One recommendation was that Lucas Heights be empowered to undertake non-nuclear energy research and development. None of the other recommendations appear to have any effects, and the non-nuclear research one had a sequel which the Committee probably had not foreseen. In 1981, Ministers agreed that CSIRO should move into Lucas Heights and do non-nuclear energy research. The Chemical Technology Division of the AAEC was transferred together with some hundreds of staff in other divisions. The pace of reviews quickened in the mid-1980s. The Australian Science and Technology Council, ASTEC, reported on a major review in 1984, and in 1986 the National Science and Technology Analysis Group, NSTAG, set up by the Academies of Science and of Technological Sciences, with the Federation of Scientific and Technological Societies and Institution of Engineers, reported on an across-the-board study of science and technology in Australia. It concluded that the total funding available to the AAEC since 1970 has remained about the same. In essence, the funding is seriously inadequate in respect to capital expenditure and is tight in some operational areas. So yes, we had problems but we kept trying. And it seems to me that the true story, as seen from inside the Commission rather than by outsiders, should be put on record. I believe I am well qualified as anyone to tell it as it happened. Why? Because I was there, from the beginning, almost to the end, in charge of the Commission's research establishment at Lucas Heights for much of its history.
and a member of the Commission for about 13 years. Much of what follows is not written anywhere. There have been published accounts of parts of the Commission's history, but not by anyone with inside knowledge. I have tried to tell it as it was. That which is not on the record elsewhere concerns the reasons behind policy decisions taken by the Commission. I have reported those factually. They are the principal reason for writing this at all. My memory has been assisted where relevant by the annual reports of the Commission, 1953-85. to 85. Much of what follows is what happened to activities in which I was personally involved as the leader or manager of that activity. I can be sure of my facts in those matters. As a result, there is a lot of I did this or we did that, and little or no mention of the roles or importance of many other people involved in the total story of the Commission. For example, some notable members of the Commission are not mentioned at all, simply because they did not enter into what I describe in any detailed way. Some of them may feel left out, for which I apologise. On the other hand, some may well feel glad not to be associated with the story, such as the image of the atom in some circles. End of chapter 1